I'm Lara Land, somatic coach and yoga teacher trainer, and this is the Beyond Trauma podcast. What a couple of years we have had. The challenges continue to grow, and more and more of us are experiencing some level of traumatic stress. My commitment here is to bring you the most up-to-date insights on exactly how trauma affects our mind-body-spirit system and how we can work with our bodies to soften its impacts. You will be hearing from trauma survivors and researchers, and together, we are going to incorporate what they have to teach us to heal ourselves and promote the well-being of all those around us. Here we go. Friends, this one is for all of us. Many of you know my next guest, Nikki Myers, as the creator of Y12SR Yoga, Yoga of 12-Step Recovery, and she is that and more. If you have any illusions that you are beyond addiction, this interview will really set that straight in a good way. We discuss how addiction is a part of us all and the ways we use it to find relief from being uncomfortable. Nikki is such a wealth of knowledge, quoting Patanjali's yoga sutras just like pie and making connections between the cognitive, somatic, and spiritual that we all need. And friends, we get deep really fast in this discussion. Nikki is an accomplished speaker and teacher, yoga therapist, somatic experiencing practitioner, addictions recovery specialist, and Ayurvedic specialist, and founder of the before-mentioned Y12SR, a relapse prevention program that weaves yoga and the 12-step program. Her Y12SR meetings are available internationally and online, and her curriculum has become a feature of addiction recovery treatment centers. She was named a yoga journal game changer and is an honored recipient of the esteemed NUVO Cultural Visionary Award. Like I said, we dig in deep real fast. I know you are going to love this. Here we go. How are you? That's a great question. You know, we're in this point in time where there's nothing normal. And, you know, in this very moment, I'm okay. So it's both those things that are going on. Yeah. (laughs) How do you, I mean, you're going deep right away. So I'm just going to follow you there. (laughs) (laughs) I get a sense that that's how you are. You know, we, we got to meet briefly doing the Soul Fest panel, but we haven't had a lot of chances to uh, connect. So I'm really excited to connect with you. But I, I got that sense through listening to you on some other podcasts. So yeah, so I'll, I'll just jump in and say and ask, you know, like, how do you hold both those things? For me, that's what practice is really all about, right? The ability to hold or expanding my capacity is a better word, I think, to to say around that. To hold the ends, right? To hold the opposites, to hold things when I was never very good at that, right? I was very, I have been throughout a lot of period of my life. The pattern or, you know, we talk about yoga samskara of either or, right? It had to be this or that, black or white, hard or soft. I had, I was very, very stuck in the binaries. And so part of the practices for me is expanding the capacity to hold opposites, right? To hold, to come out of that really socially constructed binary framework, 
right? That we live in. Yeah. And to know that there's something that's accessible and beyond that binary framework while still recognizing that I live in it, right? So I always say, I wish this was my quote, but I, I'm pretty sure at least where I first heard it from, it came from Jesus, right? How can we be in it and not of it, right? Mm, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's another like space to hold, right? It's like owning that, like, even though there's a part of me that's like holding everything and and that can make us feel like as practitioners, like that we know something. <laughs> we, we're, right. still, we're still immersed in the in the culture, right? Right. That's probably one of the biggest pieces of, of humility for me yeah. is in that recognition that I don't even know what I don't know. Yes. Right. <laughs> and so <sighs> right. And standing in that. Right. And putting one foot in front of the other and doing the next good, right, honest thing. Right. Mm. But it's really true. I, I have to stay in the recognition that, you know, I don't even know what I, I see things through a lens. You cannot not see things through a lens first in where we are. Right. And so making the assumption that my lens is the lens or that, you know, I know things that, oh my God, there's no way. I know from my subjective reality, right? And everybody has a subjective reality. So, you know, it's really, it's a deep, like you said, it's a deep conversation. Yeah. And I'm wondering if it's so amazing, Nikki, how you're able to really stay in that space. You know, I think. Like, I don't. You don't. You come in and yeah, out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, but Laura, I was saying, I can't delude myself that way either. I don't stay there, right? And this is that matter of, it's an awareness of really, and particularly for me in my body now, it really is in my body. I know what balance and homeostasis feels like, yeah. even though that's not static. It changes, but there is a knowing about when this multidimensional system that I am is in more of a sense of homeostasis, yeah. right? And so the awareness of recognizing that I'm no longer there, right? The awareness of, of recognizing that I've moved a little too far. Even when you think about homeostasis, I can move a little too far hyper or hypo, right? Yeah. Right. We got both those states, right? And the beauty is more and more I'm able to recognize when I moved out of that homeostasis into either hyper or hypo. This is really important. And then I can use tools. Then I can yeah. use, then I got a set of practices and tools, and I've got people to call. I got prayers, I got meditation, I got my tribe, right? And I can access them and that when I recognize that I'm out of balance and use it as a way to keep coming back to balance. Yeah. Yeah. I really wanted to highlight that because going into a, a hyper hypo response is what happens when we're triggered, when we have a stress response, That's a right. traumatic stress response, which is, you know, kind of the lens of this podcast and my work. And so knowing, and then some of us, you know, having gone through 
certain traumas are what feels like middle ground, right? Or homeostasis might be leaning more, like we might feel more comfortable in that hyper. That's when we we think we're okay. We feel okay because that's what we're used to. Yeah. And that for me is really coming to this sense is that keep coming back. For me, what it's like, Laura, is that the yogis talk about five bodies, not just one, but they talk about five. This is a model from an ancient text called the Tartaria Upanishad. And balance feels like integration, alignment, connection between and among all five of those bodies, Yeah. right? And so the five bodies are, of course, the structure, the physical body. It's the emotional body or the energy body. It's the mind that's the intellectual body, right? There's the deeper levels, right? Character and intuition and all of of those kinds of things. And then there's the heart. And the heart is not the blood pump, but the spiritual heart. Right. And when there's a sense of integration and alignment and connection between those, I say five bodies, but they're really all the same thing because there is no separation. Mm. It's a model that's a model to look at. And it's a model through which I can inquire. Right. That even though I may feel a little hyper in my energy body. I can ask myself the question, okay, where are you in your spiritual heart in this Mm -hmm. moment? Where are you in this moment in your mind? Is your mind racing or is it hyper too, right? So there's some questions that I can begin to ask myself relative to all five of those bodies. And then sooner or later, I get to know what that feels like as a sense of balance, right? What that feels like, almost like true north, right? That what that feels like, what it is as a sense of balance, because you're absolutely right. And I would assert from what you were mentioning there that I know for me and what I suggest with folks that that I work with is you always get, you know, your default, right? Some people default to fight or flight, right? My default is the other way. I'm dorsal vagal. Mm -hmm. I shut down. I isolate. I can do the other things too. But usually where I go first is to dorsal vagal, right? I shut down. And I always suggest to people that you recognize what your default is, where you go first, right? Some people fight. Some people run right? Know what your default nervous system state is when you get dysregulated, right? And that gives us some information as well. Yeah. Really knowing self and the self-inquiry, which is a lot of what we do in yoga. That's right. That's it. You can see it on the mat, you know, when you get yourself in a kind of a pose, which brings some stuff up, you know, whether you kind of like, I don't like this pose I'm turning off (laughs) or I'm going to like really muscle down on it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There's this beautiful quote from, I believe it's from BKS Iyengar, right? Who says your yoga really starts when you want to come out of the posture, right? (laughs) The yoga really starts in that moment, right? Right. And, And I love that. Yeah. 
that's it. It's like how in that moment we can build capacity to be with, <laughs> like you, like we started out with the both and, right? Like I want to kind of zone out or get out and I'm here, you know? <laughs> right, right. And from that point, I get to choose, right? Yeah. There's this this middle path. I think, you know, a lot of my healing and history comes from 12 step because of course it's the yoga. What I do is yoga, 12 step recovery. And there's so much practical wisdom there, right? Not that this particularly comes from specifically 12 step. It dates back a lot farther than that, but it's a tool that's been around and often used by, by 12 steppers so much. It's the serenity prayer, right? It's the serenity prayer. Well, there's a space where I can gain access to the wisdom to know the difference, right? And on my mat is kind of where I get to practice that. In that moment where there may be something telling me, stay in this posture because if you don't, everybody's going to look at you and think you're a wuss or think you like that, right? Or that other moment where you're fussing at the teacher. You know, why is she doing this? Right. Oh, yeah. There's, <laughs> there's a space in between that. There's a space in between that that really is the wisdom to know the difference. And when I'm in that space, I get to choose, right? Because coming out of the posture may be the exact right thing to do, right? And then other times staying in the posture, being in the exploration of, okay, what's that sensation, right? I know it's not affecting my joint, so I'm okay. Is there this quaking or twitching or what's going on? Can I stay with it? Times I'm, I'm in the inquiry. There are other times when my teacher says the answer to everything is it depends, right? Yeah. There are other, I love that, right? Yeah. There are other times where the right answer is to stop, right? Yes. Yeah. You know, this is exactly what we teach in, in trauma-sensitive yoga, right? Because it's when we go through a trauma, we are disempowered. And while we're learning to recognize our own power again, it's all in that choice. What I want, what I choose to do with my body in that moment. Right. Exactly. You know, what I said, probably the biggest thing or one of, I should say, the biggest things in trauma healing is restoring agency. Yes. Right. In, in the moment of the trauma, there's no agency. Right. And so and when that gets usurped and, and taken away and the beauty of doing the trauma informed work in yoga and on the mat is that whole idea of restoring agency that I got choice. Yeah. And Nikki, do you see addiction as a response to trauma? I assert that what sits under any addiction is some, you know, the way that it's often, well, really, the way that it's described in the science of Ayurveda, and really the art and science of Ayurveda, is they speak of this word called ama, right? And the definition of ama is anything that lies across our five body system in a state that's unresolved, unfinished, incomplete, undigested, right? Anything that lies in our five body system in that state will cause toxins, poisons, 
all of those kinds of things across our five body system, right? And oftentimes that's pretty easy to grasp and understand if it's, for example, some food that's undissolved in my belly, right? Something that's undissolved in my belly. You know, I'm going to want some relief from that, right? If it hurts and my belly hurts, I'm going to want some relief. Right. So I may run out to the nearest CVS and buy some Maalox or whatever it is because it hurts and I need relief. Right. And so the problematic with that, though, is the Maalox covers it, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't resolve it. Right. Right. And part of the issue I assert with addiction is that we confuse relief and resolve. We really confuse relief and resolve because that same, using that same analogy, that's true whether it's undigested food in my belly or if it's an undigested, unresolved, unfinished experience in my life. Mm -hmm. And that's what trauma is, right? Trauma is some unresolved, unfinished, right? That whole thing. And, you know, something that has moved that happened to is my body's response for something that's happened too much, too soon. All of those to, to, you know, just too much, too soon. Right. It's my body. Trauma is my body's response to that. And so the answer to a long answer. Sorry about that. But the answer is yes. <laughs> right. I assert that what sits any underneath any addiction is that there's something related to something that's unresolved, unfinished, incomplete, undigested, right? Whether that's an experience or whatever the deeper layers of that may be. Yeah. Yeah. And so the addiction or the addictive behavior is an effort for relief. Absolutely. It's an effort for relief. It's absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And we confuse relief with resolve, right? And even, you know, I assert that that confusion reigns as well in our systems, in our healthcare systems, in our addiction treatment. A lot of times it's about relief rather than getting underneath there with the resolve. And when that happens, and I know this from my own experience, when that happens, we play whack-a-mole, right? And whack-a-mole is, you know, for me, I dealt with the alcohol and drugs, at least for a while, right? My story includes relapse. So I dealt with the alcohol and drugs, whack that mole down, but then sex popped up, right? And then I do, I do some work and deal with that. But then uh, debtor spending pops up, right? Money pops up. Right. And so unless we really get go underneath there, right, we if you like me, I play whack-a-mole for a long, 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 long time. (laughs) I love that image. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And until we get to the root, the root cause, those other ways of finding relief are going to are going to keep popping up. It'll show up another way. How does yoga and what parts of the yoga practice help get to the resolve in maybe a way that some other modalities didn't for you? And is it a certain system or a certain part of the practice that really works to help with relapse and addiction? That's a great question too. 
And for me, it's really all the parts, right? It's so the work that we do. And for me, and what I've seen for working with, I don't even know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of folks over the course that I've been doing this work, there's something in the combination of the cognitive work with the somatic work that opens up. I always say that's where the juice is, right? There's something about this coupling and particularly the way we do it and we work with this in the work that I do. There's something about this coupling, the cognitive work, which is in the 12 step work is brilliant for cognitive work, right? I mean, brilliant, right? The steps are brilliant, right? And one of the things I love about the most is that they're free, right? They don't have a monetary, you know, you sometimes in 12 step, you go in a room and you put a dollar in a basket if you got a dollar and you always hear you are more important than your money, right? So it takes all those pieces, which can be troubling in another way as well, which can come up in another way as well. And what we do is deeply couple the cognitive work in the somatic work. The theme of my work has always been, since it started back in the early 2000s, right? The issues live in our tissues, right? And so this way of supporting and using our mat as a way to release what may be being held in our tissues and have been this, and that comes from my work in the work in somatic experiencing, right? When I did that work, I saw that there was a way to couple the cognitive and, and this somatic work in a way that really, really, really could begin to define other levels of release, a different level of release, right? And I should say about that, it's not like we're doing, there are reasons for doing deep trauma release work with like EMDR and like tapping and like all of those, I call those tools they're, they're kind of like the rotor rooter, right? <laughs> right. When you really, you really need to go deep with, with the rotor rooter. What we do is more this maintenance level work, right? To keep the vessel clear, to keep the things clear, right? That kind of thing. And I found that yoga and working with the cognitive and the somatic in this way provide an incredible tool right? Really an incredible tool. And when things are clear, I make better decisions, right? When things are, when I got space, really it's all about making space in our bodies and our hearts and in our minds, right? Making that space, then things show up a little bit differently, right? Yeah, absolutely. Does that make sense, Laura? Yeah, it definitely does. I'm just super curious, like what your classes look like. And I heard you speak a little bit that you had some, uh, you studied Ashtanga in Boston. Um, I come from an Ashtanga background. I probably know the people you studied with. I bet you probably do. (laughs) And so was it Jean or... I know there are a couple different teachers there. No, I, no. I don't know why I can't think of her name right now, but she's, a, and, and I've lost touch with her, but she was an incredible Ashtanga teacher. She's a black woman, right? And there weren't a lot of black women representation in yoga, period. No, that's true. 
in in the Ashtanga world. And so this was in, I was in Boston in the 80s, right? So this was 19, in, in the 1980s. And I've got to, I really want to look up and, and find her again because I, you know, I don't know if she even really knows the gift that studying with her years ago. And it wasn't Regina? It's Regina. Regina, yeah. I mean, like you said, there are very few, unfortunately, Black folks in the yoga world and in the Ashtanga world. Sister Shri, she goes by now. Oh. She goes by what now? Sister Shri. She also makes music. I'll, I'll be happy to reconnect you. I would love to Please do that. Please do. Yeah. That would yeah. make me very happy because I'm, I'm sure she does not know the really beautiful scene that was planted from the work that I did with her in the 80s, right? This was in the in the 80s. So yeah. So if you do that, I would be forever grateful. That's so beautiful. And I love when we have those moments to let people know how they've impacted us. Yeah. And then you're doing that now for so many and the teachers you're teaching are touching so many lives. So it's really being passed forward. In the circle. Right. I love that. I love it. Yeah. Maybe you want to explain a little bit about Y12SR. I mean, I'm so, so curious, Nikki, (laughs) about so many, many things from, you know, from the classes themselves to the training programs. Okay. So anyone welcome. We're doing, there are quite a few online, of course. And I do one online on Monday nights, Monday evenings at 6 p.m. Eastern time. And if you look on the website, y12sr.com, and under meetings, it will give you the information about how to get there. And again, all these classes are by donation. And so you go in through Zoom and do that kind of thing. But there's always an option there for you are more important than your money. Zero, right? Always an option there for that. And what it looks like, again, sometimes the answer is it depends, right? Yeah. It doesn't it doesn't matter whether you do the yoga piece first and then the discussion or cognitive work, or whether you do the cognitive work first, then the yoga practice. It simply matters that the two are coupled, right? It matters that the two are coupled. And so oftentimes what it looks like, the first part almost looks like a 12-step meeting, right? We start when we're in person, we're in a circle. And when we're online, of course, we're in the Hollywood squares, right? And, you know, it's over Zoom. And we start with a centering, right? Coming home and coming to the moment in this recognition, whatever's happened has happened. And then we're here, right? We're here now. And then we read a little format. We read a little format and that kind of sets the container, if you will, right? The whole part of the whole idea of that container in particular is that it's a space where energy can move, right? Mm. Because Energy will only move when it feels safe, right? So we're going to do our best to create a container that's going to allow energy to move, right? So we can walk out of that place a little bit differently, right? And hopefully in a healing direction by the time we leave. 
And so we read the format, set the container, do all that kind of stuff. And then we usually open it up. And again, the meetings can be held or, or these discussions can be held in a variety of ways. But oftentimes someone will ask, do you have a topic or problem or serenity threatening issue that you'd like to hear the group share about? And someone raises their hand and they may bring up a topic and a topic could be anything, right? Kind of like what we're talking about. What do you do when you're triggered? How do you, you know, how do I walk when I feel this sense of activation to my nervous system, right? What do you do, right? And so it's this question that's open up to all of whoever's there, right? There's usually a timekeeper. And then for whatever the time period is, two minutes or three minutes, we open it up for sharing, right? And people simply share their, which I love, their own experience, strength, and hope, right? You share your experience, strength, and hope on whatever the topic is, whatever the topic that arises. And so we do that for a period of time. And then we stop and usually and this can go, you know, a different couple of ways. We might do the serenity prayer. We might do something else to end that piece. And then we usually take a little break. It's time to set up our mats and do all that. And then we bring a quote unquote trauma informed themed yoga practice. Right. And the practice is usually themed in whatever the discussion is. So me as the person who's looking to guide the practice, what I'm really listening for and really going to guide the practice toward is the spiritual principle that's set up that's underneath the conversation. Right. Mm. The spiritual principle. Right. And it may be like we were talking about earlier. It may be a spiritual principle that like humility. It may be a principle like acceptance. It may be a principle like awareness. Right. It may be a principle like surrender, letting go. Right. And then as the person who teaches the yoga class, I'm going to guide the body and the presence into whatever that spiritual principle is, right? So how do I recognize what humility feels like in my body, right? Know what it's not, know what it is, so I can know this is what it feels like, right? And again, the idea is that when I'm off the mat and into my life, and all of a sudden I recognize that I'm no longer in that state of humility. Are there some tools that I can use to keep coming back, right? Keep coming back to whatever that spiritual principle is. Keep coming back to the middle, right? The whole idea of finding the middle, right? It's the whole idea of like it talks about in Yoga Sutra, right? 246 is a sense of stability, a sense of foundation, a sense of grounding and steadiness in my being and you know, and there's an and again, a sense of ease, right? A sense of, of softening, softening the grip, right? Of grasping or softening the grip of, or clenching that I know I can sometimes do. So finding that middle. And so the class is kind of like that. Typically, all the tools of asana, pranayama, and meditation. So they're really, really integrated classes, we love mudra and use a lot of mudra. 
And just again, these tools to use that we know can support us off our mat into our lives to bring, you know, a sense of harmony and, and balance and homeostasis back to our being. Wow. I mean, I really feel like your teachers have to be very skilled to be able to be listening so deeply in that initial conversation and, and pull out that spiritual theme as you called it. And maybe they have, yeah, they have like a kind of list of spiritual themes or they're just right. There are spiritual principles that sit underneath the 12 steps. Mm. Actually, the reason you really work the steps is to embody the spiritual principles that sit under. It's not an exercise where you just do it for doing its sake. You really work the steps in order to embody the spiritual principles that sit underneath them. And here's the really interesting thing that the spiritual principles that sit underneath the steps look a whole lot like the yamas and niyamas and some of the principles that we talk about in yoga, Mm. right? They look a whole lot like Yoga Sutra 133 and Yoga Sutra 233. They look a whole lot like those things. So there's ways to, and that's what I want to do. Even, you know, if I'm not someone who's caught up in a specific substance use disorder or a behavioral use disorder, if I'm a straight up yogi, right? That's what I want, right? I want to walk in the world in this sense of embodiment with the spiritual principles. And I often say this, I would assert that this work is not just for those people, right? Those people who are stuck in the quote unquote throes of addiction, right? It's really for all of us. I often, you know, when I'm teaching, go back to what I would kind of paraphrase from Patanjali, Right. And that's it. We're all addicted to the way we process our reality. We're all addicted to the way we process. And part of the freedom, you know, should just say the goal of this being in this plane of existence in, in this human form is freedom and fulfillment. Right. I think it's 216. I think 214, 216, something like that. And in order to get to that freedom and fulfillment, it's looking at all my habits and my patterns and my attachments and all of those things, which in a way is another form of saying addiction. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Which means we all need to be in your classes. (laughs) I love it. It's true. We are addicted. We're addicted to our, our patterns of processing, our way of seeing things. That's right. Yes. I'm really glad you mentioned that because I wanted to ask you that and to make sure that folks who might not identify as being active addicts, as you described, you know, would still feel comfortable and or still gain so much from coming to your classes. Absolutely. We use this phrase, which, you know, I would say, I think it's one of the most brilliant. I'm pretty sure I wrote this. It's a brilliant, one of the most brilliant sentences I've ever written, right? That this is for anyone and everyone dealing with their own addictive behavior or affected by the addictive behavior of others. Mm -hmm. Well, who's not? (laughs) Right. Who is not? Right. And even on a, an economic basis, if you look at the amount of, of dollars, right, that in order put 
forth around healing addiction, right? Economically, from, from an economic perspective, believe me, we're all affected by this. We're all affected. And then that's just one aspect to it, right? That's just one aspect to it. So anyone is welcome to come to any of the one Travis Star classes. And that is a, another thing too, that you got all manifestations of addiction in the room at the same time. And there's a deep learning in that, that mm. when, when all of the things are in there at the same time. So there are like 200 different kinds of 12-step programs, which always blows my mind, right? There's actually a hoarder's anonymous and there's a clutterer's anonymous. And there, there's actually, which this one really heartens me, there's actually a racist anonymous, right? And so even for a deep systemic problem, right? Because pretty soon when you do this work, it has to come out of when there start being access to levels of healing at the individual, what that needs to grow into is to the collective because it's not all about me. But when I get some chops and healing and some work and no, and I keep can keep coming back to this work and, and healing myself, then the container grows bigger. It's that whole thing we were speaking about. Then I can hold space for some others, right? I know what it means to hold space for myself, right? I know what my connection points in, in beyond the, I call it the matrix, right? I know what my connections are beyond the matrix. So the space can expand and get bigger. And then I can hold space for healing for others. And it really excites me that things like, 12-step principles might be applied to a systemic issue like racism, right? Or sexism, that I can use these same kind of principles across the board, right? And which, again, the things that affect all of us <laughs> in one way or another. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really glad you brought that up because sometimes, you know, in the yoga, yoga process, practice, we can get so inward looking that we forget yep. that piece and it's crucial. Yeah, it's absolutely crucial. My experience is that if that gets left unaddressed, you do what I did. Part of that was for me how I relapsed. I relapsed twice, right? And went into deep relapse twice. And uh, part of it for me is I was at that place where I didn't cross that bridge from the individual to the collective, right? I didn't cross that bridge very well from the personal to the community, all right, or to those bridges. I didn't cross those very, very well. And that led me back into the throes of relapse, right? And I see that in both the yoga community and in the in 12-step community, which was one of the reasons, you know, that this whole thing came, came in, was birthed. Yeah. Maybe you could speak a little bit to the tools to help us move, make that move into the collective. That whole idea of learning what it really means to hold space and having that conversation about what it really means. It doesn't mean fixing, 
right? It doesn't mean advising. It doesn't mean that it's a more of a, it's, it's learning the distinctions between empathy and compassion and pity and, you know, getting really clear about what some of those distinctions are. Right. I do this other coursework that I love and it's particularly for well, it's created for many, but I love the title of it. The title of it is Are You Compassionate or Are You Codependent? The wisdom to know the difference. Right. Because there's yeah. a very fine line between compassion and codependence. Right. Yep. There's a fine line there. Right. And so part of that work is doing my work, right? So I really can hold space for the collective in a way that is healing and is the Yoga Sutras, the Yoga Sutras talk about klishta and aklishta. Aklishta is work that moves us forward in healing. Klishta is more moving us in a, a different direction, right? So just learning that. So it's, tool, it's things like that. Yeah. Right. That help us to move from the individual to the collective. Right. It's the true sense of are the deeper levels, the deeper meanings and, and things that are possible in meditation. Right. Those tools in, in meditation. Right. Help us to create this bigger container and this bigger space. And a lot of it, you know, we were talking about humility a little bit earlier and a lot of it is in the recognition that it really isn't about me right mm -hmm. it's not about it is me creating the space and you know holding this space so spirit can do the work right i'm not doing the work if i start to interfere and put myself in the equation oftentimes that's when it goes sideways yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm just sitting here. I'm like closing my eyes and I'm, I'm just, I'm actually like, I keep repeating that question about, you know, am I compassionate or am I codependent? Yeah. And just, I'm like really feeling into the, the subtlety of that and the importance of getting really subtle and asking these questions. I mean, just, just a question like that. I'm just feeling how, if I can just ask myself that, throughout the day and throughout my work, right? And especially yeah. for those of us who are really trying to do advocacy work and great social justice work, it's like we really have to be careful about those kinds of questions because we can end up replicating the harms that have been done, right? Or doing more. Not or doing more. Right. Yeah. right. You're absolutely right. And it's so subtle. It can happen with the best intentions, but it will sneak in there if we don't stop and do that work and ask those questions. That's it. That's it. Yep. And, you know, and I only say that from personal experience, right? I only say that from, you know, like we talk about my own experience, strength and hope, right? My hope is that, you know, we don't have to fall in, in that hole or that trap, right? Yeah. But it's a subtle one. It's a subtle one. And it, it deserves that kind of attention. Right. I love that you were giving it that kind of attention because it's a subtle one. Yeah, it's so important. And it's a really, really great and important reminder. 
I'm going to hold that with me today, Nikki. Thank you for that. I love it. I love it. <laughs> I want to ask you just a few more questions. I know you, you also have a foundation. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to share a little bit about what your foundation does and the work you're doing? Absolutely. It is under Give Back Yoga. So Give Back Yoga is this 501c3 and they open it up so that programs like ours don't have to do all the kind of work that a 501c3 does, which I am so not interested in, right? I'm really not interested in that. I want to do the work that, you know. I, I have a 501c3, so I can definitely. Uh... <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? I do. Right, I right. really do. Yeah. So I am really grateful that we're fiscally sponsored by this 501c3. And with grants and donations and all of those kinds of things, there are actually three pieces that fit under the Wontobasar Foundation. And one of them is called the COI, which is the Community Outreach Initiative. And what the Community Outreach Initiative does is for what folks are we leaders who are willing, they're invited in to go into some underserved, under-resourced, marginalized, vulnerable, if you will, that, I'm not a big fan of that word in this context, but communities that really, as we look at, I mean, we can just look at the opioid epidemic in the United States, right? And the newest figures that came out, right, is that an OD happens every five minutes in the United States. Something's freaking wrong with that picture, wow. right? There's an OD that happens every five minutes in the United States. And many of those most gravely affected are people with little or no access to treatment or for whatever reason, you know, may even have this distrustful relationship with the quote unquote medical community, right? You know, and for some, for very good reason. And so we want to support that population. We really want to support that. So we invite once over to leaders to go into not-for-profit rehabs and to go to into some of the most, the hardest hit and most deeply affected communities, particularly right now, the key is looking at the opioid crisis, but there's so many others, right? But what we do when we're doing that work is really the work of what we were speaking to a little bit earlier, getting underneath there. So we don't have to play whack-a-mole, right? Mm -hmm. So that, that, right, doing that deeper level of inquiry and, and deeper level of work with it. And so we have folks that go out into those communities and we pay them, right? We pay them a stipend because it should be a win-win thing. It has to be a win-win, right? So we pay them a stipend. We ask the organization that they're, you know, going into to pay them something. And that's just out of respect for the energy of money, right? So if they can pay them $5, that's fine. And we'll pay them a stipend so that at least it's it's somewhat like right livelihood, right? For the time and effort that that folks are spending to do that work. 
And so we do that. Right. And then we do, we got another piece of the foundation that's called Communities Rising. And it's a 200 hour yoga teacher training. It's a 200 hour yoga teacher training with a social justice, in a social justice framework. Right. And that's work that I do in collaboration with Rolf Gates, who's another, if you don't know Rolf, right? Fantastic yoga teacher in recovery. So it's got a lot of, emphasis around addiction, right? And the bigger definition of addiction, right? This bigger, like we've been exploring here, this bigger definition of addiction. And so we do that 200 hour teacher training at least once a year, right? And it's been a fabulous experience. And the hope is like we were speaking to earlier, coming out of this teacher training that you can go back into communities that are really looking for something different, right? And you can do it from this place of how we speak of it, the social justice framework. And then the last one is something that underneath that umbrella is something I've done with my really dear friend and mentor and, oh my God, love of my life, Sean Korn, right? And we do this thing that's called Race in America. We're looking pretty deeply at that systemic addiction of racism and how it harms everyone, right? Even if you're in the, in the dominant class, right? You can get, or you can get, I don't know what the word is I want to use, but you can get into that dorsal vagal response. I'm seeing it a lot right now. You know, we get into that dorsal vagal response of withdrawal, isolate, yeah. disconnect, right? Like I've seen that a lot with what happened in Texas just recently, all those kids, right? And when my nervous system gets so overwhelmed by that stuff, right? Like yeah. I said, my response is to actually isolate. So, and I get it. So we're working with folks and looking at those things. We're looking at a lot of stuff in race in America. What we did was for over the years, we have taken groups to some really historically significant places in the United States. Our last couple of them before COVID, and then we started, of course, doing uh, some things online. But we took groups to the Equal Justice Initiative in Alabama and the, the Legacy Museum and all those places. We went to Selma, where mm-hmm. we did some work with this beautiful woman where, you know, we did a slave ship reenactment, right? And then we just do all this deep level of, of work, a lot of it at the body, in the body and the experiential level of things to really look at how we can come a- away from this at least with a perspective and a possibility of, you know, what it might be to really live beyond this binary framework, right? Yeah. The framework is set up this way, right? It's good, bad, right, wrong, black, white, all of those things, right? All of those. So what it might look like to really, really create a reality that's beyond the binary framework. So those are the three programs that kind of sit underneath there. Shauna, just, just a couple things. <laughs> Sean and I look at it, get that started again. It, you know, we did it online, 
right? Yeah. And and I can't wait to get kick it back up and make it live again. Yeah, we're talking about talking about the next one in New Orleans, which is so Ooh. juicy, right? Yeah. There's a lot that's juicy. Yeah. Thank oh yeah, you. I had my first realization of the binaries and the racism in this country when I was 15 and went, went to New Orleans, actually, it was, uh, one of those strong foundational experiences in life that has uh, never left me. Um, wow. You know, I, I was blind to it until then. And, uh, yep. I had never ever seen a you know Confederate flag hung in someone's house before. I'll tell you that that is an image I will never get out of my mind. Yeah, yeah, and and you're right. There's a, a numbing that occurs. With I mean, even in this world of addiction, we always say you can't heal what you don't acknowledge, right? Yeah. You cannot heal what you do not acknowledge. It's impossible. Yeah, and I really want to highlight what you said for the listeners, and and to make a really strong point about that. You know, sometimes it feels like a lot, and it is a lot. You know, mm-hmm. the, the realities of the injustice in this country, the brutality. I mean, I've, I've been struggling a lot with what happened in Texas to the kids. I mean, just being a mom, it's just hitting me in a certain way. And I bet. And there's also a campaign for us to turn off. I want to say that sometimes that's on purpose. Like that is a strategy to overwhelm so you feel like you can't do anything. You feel powerless right? and you go into that trauma response. And so we have to know that, understand that in our bodies and work toward, okay, maybe we can pendulate, you know, you don't yeah. want to get overwhelmed in the news. You turn it off, you recover and you build capacity to hold more and you don't let it move you into inaction. That's it. We're back to that conversation about relief and resolve, right? Sometimes you need relief, right? Mm. Sometimes I absolutely positively need relief. I just can't confuse relief with resolve, right? Yes, know what you're, what I'm doing at this moment, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Like consciously, I'm going to consciously turn off right now so that I can re-engage with more capacity. Right. That's well, so well put. Oh, Nikki, you are just, well, a well of information, just a pleasure to talk to. I just want to honor you. I'm in awe of you. I've learned so much in this conversation and in preparing for it, listening to you on a few other podcasts. I'm going to commit right now to um, coming online and taking one of your classes because I I really want to experience that for myself. I love it. I love it. Thank you for inviting me and thank you for the work that, that you're doing. Right. I mean, even in this right now and just supporting people again in understanding you're not flawed. Trauma is a defense mechanism. It is something that I always say that stuff saved my life. It saved my life. And uh, well, this is a, the Peter Levine quote, who's my teacher in this, right? Again, trauma is a fact of life. It doesn't have to be a life sentence, right? And that I can start things moving again and hold that this is what happened. I get that. This is what happened. And we can be a part of life once again. Trauma stuck. It's stuff that's stuck. And so thank you for doing this work to supporting, you know, the move and the flow of 
life force and prana and all of that thing, all of that, because that's what healing trauma is all about. You know, start that flow moving again. Thank you, Nikki. As we buzz around the busy world, it becomes clear there are billions of paths. As we buzz around the busy world, we will appear in other people's photographs. As we speed through the centuries, we will collide and the light will bend. We will be accidentally immortalized in someone else's land.